Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I am your guest host, Linda House. I'm the president of the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and to get back to normal. Whether accessing our free services in person at one of our 175 locations, online, or over our toll-free helpline, you are getting a full team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and so much more. A few weeks ago, I asked our regular host, Kim Tibaldo, if I could borrow her microphone, if you will, to talk with our listeners about a really important health topic that has been really not communicated widely to patients, but it is critically important, and she so graciously agreed. So the topic today is utilization management, and it can impact the recommendations made by your healthcare team and what your insurance will cover across the board. Chances are that you've never heard the term before unless you're a part of the healthcare industry, but you may have heard or experienced some things like step therapy, fail first, prior authorization. And those are all tools where a patient is required to to go through some additional steps before what is originally um, needed for their care is actually received by the patient. And I'm being a little hesitant in that because it depends on if we're talking about a medication, an x-ray, hospitalization. So it is, when I say it's across the board, it's across the, the care continuum. So if these are familiar to you, and even if they're not, you probably are thinking, what is she saying? Um, but there, there, there are a number of aspects to this, and, and, and we want to make sure that you're aware of it. I am proud to say that the cancer support community has taken a leadership role in making sure that the patient remains at the center of all treatment decisions and diagnosis decisions, while really understanding and respecting the efforts of the healthcare industry to address the very real and rapidly increasing cost of care. I think we all agree on on that, that we we need to, to monitor that. This fall... I had the pleasure of participating in an extraordinary gathering of patients, advocates, clinicians, insurers, payers, purchasers, and the the folks who really represent the full care continuum, where we had really honest and open discussions really about this trend of utilization management and what the future looks like. How can we create shared values that have patients at the center? And more importantly, potential opportunities to really sort of build on a set of principles and other strategies to make sure that we are containing the costs of care, maintaining quality, and more importantly, keeping patients at the center and what is important to patients at the center of of this. What's terrific is that not only this summit, but a whole year of work has been led by my good friend and colleague, Elizabeth Franklin, who is here with us today. So utilization, or UM for short, can impact all patients regardless of their medical condition. So for today's conversation, we're going to focus on how it might impact people diagnosed with cancer particularly, which is scary, frustrating, and maybe even um, a bewildering topic. But Elizabeth is truly the expert around this particular topic and will help us understand some of these complex 
considerations in a more simple and practical way. So before I start with Elizabeth, let me tell you a little bit about Elizabeth. Elizabeth serves as the Executive Director of the Cancer Support Community's Cancer Policy Institute. She was formerly the Director of Policy and Engagement at the George Washington University Cancer Institute. Previously, Elizabeth was a Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy with the Prevent Cancer Foundation, as well as Special Assistant to the Chief Executive Officer at the headquarters of the National Association of Social Work. Elizabeth is currently working is currently a doctoral candidate at the University of Maryland School of Social Work, where she is focusing her dissertation on the ways in which patients define value in the cancer care system and how those definitions can be incorporated into public policy and clinical practice. Elizabeth, that's a lot. Welcome so much to the show. Thank you so much, Linda. I appreciate you having me. So our listeners have heard a lot from me. I would love for you to just talk a little bit about about this concept, just generally, about utilization management and where did it start, where is it going, just at a very high level. Sure. Well, if um, if you've watched TV or listened to the radio or read a newspaper over the past year, you know that one of the major themes that have been a part of healthcare policy discussions is the fact that healthcare costs are proving unsustainable. They're incredibly high. Um, just a, a few quick facts to kind of put this in context. In 2016, the United States spent $3.35 trillion, with a T, um, which is approximately 18% of our gross domestic product on healthcare. In other words, that is a ton of money. Um, concerns are particularly acute in cancer because costs are rising uh, more rapidly than any other field. So for cancer patients, um, we're afraid that they will see rising out-of-pocket costs. So when the overall cost of care rise in our country, we might see rising premiums, which is what patients pay out-of-pocket to keep their health care rising deductibles, which is what patients pay um, before their health insurance actually kicks in, um, rising coinsurance, which is the percentage that they pay of their insurance to get care, and so on and so forth. Between co-pays and all of these things, patients are really facing potentially unsustainable costs. In addition to what patients are dealing with, societal costs are really rising. And so we completely understand that the need to take care of millions of people across this country is really proving to be economically um, impossible. We just, we can't keep pace with the, with the demand. Between the number of folks aging in this country because um, baby boomers are aging, we know that cancer is largely a disease of folks who are getting older. So we're just seeing the numbers rise and the, the need really continue to grow. So what does this mean in terms of this concept of utilization management? Basically, and we'll break it down in terms of those two words, it's managing the utilization of care. In a perfect world, this means that we ensure that patients are not getting any care that they don't need, that we're using um, health uh, dollars wisely, and that it's going towards care that is beneficial to patients. But in the, the real world, this doesn't always happen. And so utilization is uh, utilization management is sometimes used in a way that could negatively impact patients. It could potentially delay care or prevent them from accessing care. And so 
we've been working over the past year to have very open, honest, frank conversations, not only with patients who we talk to each and every day, but also, um, like you said, Linda, with insurance companies, with uh, pharmacy benefit managers, which are an important piece of this discussion, with employers, with everybody involved um, in the utilization management and healthcare environment, um, including providers as well, to say, look, we know that utilization management is going to occur. We know that it's an important part of maintaining a healthcare system that we can afford, but what could a patient-centered utilization management system look like? And so we've spent the last year holding roundtable events, talking to patients. We held a summit, like you said, in October to educate people about what this patient-centered utilization management system could look like. And I'm excited to dive into what we think that might look like moving into 2020. Great. Thank you. And I know that we're going to go over later in the show each of those specific uh, um, examples in a little bit more detail. But, you know, I just kind of want to step us back to some people my age or older remember when healthcare decisions were made entirely by the physician. And it feels a little bit like the the role of the physician may be impacted through the, the focus on, on cost. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about what, what happened to that and, and what impact does this have on the relationship between the patient and their healthcare team? Sure. That's a great question. Um, we know that the gold standard of uh, cancer care is a shared decision-making process. And that means that cancer patients would engage in a process with their provider to say, you know, what are your values? What are your needs? What are your preferences? What do you want to get out of your cancer treatment? Because we know that cancer treatment is so much more than just, does this drug work to keep me alive? Or, you know, is it going to make me sick? Um, there's so much more that goes into, into those conversations. And we're at a really exciting point in cancer care because there's more and more treatments coming on market. At the same time, that's part of the, the challenge in this conversation because we have so many treatments. What, what do we deem is valuable? And so what previously was a conversation between a patient and their provider, there's now all of these other issues that come into play. And so a provider might say, well, this patient has this insurance, so they need to go on this medication versus this patient has a different insurance and they need to go on that medication. It's not exactly that cut and dry, but we know that when cost comes into play, providers and patients are having to think about this in a whole new way. And so we hope that they're having open, honest conversations, but sometimes that's difficult. Um, We know that cost information isn't readily available to patients, and oftentimes providers don't even have access to that information. And so, um, you know, the gold standard would be for a patient and a provider to enter into these shared decision-making conversations with all of the information they need, but that doesn't always happen. And sometimes utilization management um, is, is brought in and can create a barrier to care. So we hope that this doesn't cause any um, barriers between the patient and their provider, but unfortunately, we hear stories that sometimes it does. And so we want to work with all stakeholders, but particularly providers and patients to say, okay, if utilization management is going to be an issue in the healthcare system, again, what can we do to make it as patient-centered as possible? Well, and and it seems like utilization management has been around for a while. 
Um, and I know that you looked into all of the players around utilization management, which would also include hospitals. And we, you know, we should talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that, and we will in, in, in a little while. But I just wondered what your perspective um, is now, after hosting the series of roundtables and discussions over the last year, about when when did the tide start to turn? When did utilization management start to pop up? When did the tide start to turn in, in the situation where it's being used so frequently now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Utilization management has been used um, in healthcare for as long as many of us remember. And again, in a perfect world, what does that look like? So there's something called prior authorization. And it's a great example of when utilization management could potentially work well. Let's say that your doctor orders chemotherapy for you. Your insurance company wants to make sure that it's the right chemotherapy for you because it's a, it's a very toxic drug, and we want to make sure that you're getting the drug that you need at the appropriate time, the appropriate dose. And so there needs to be some administrative, um, administrative work on the back end to make sure that you are getting the appropriate medication for you. So in a perfect world, utilization management works to make sure that patients are safe, um, to make sure that they're getting the, the treatments and services that they need. But as healthcare costs have risen over the past few decades, utilization management could be used really as a barrier to delay or maybe even prevent care. And we like to believe that there, um, everybody in the healthcare system has the best interests of patient and the patient in mind. But there are competing um, there are competing priorities in the healthcare system, and so we know that um, subjecting a patient to let's say something called step therapy, which you mentioned earlier, Linda, otherwise known as fail first. This can mean that a doctor prescribes a medication for a patient and the insurance company says the patient cannot have access to that medication. They need to have that. They need to use a lower cost medication first if and only when they fail on the lower medication, meaning it doesn't work, are they then able to bump to the next step and eventually get the medication that their provider, um, their doctor prescribed. And in some disease states, it's not great, but it's not going to be the difference between life and death. For cancer patients, we're really concerned when things like that happen because we know that their physician selected a treatment that is specifically the correct treatment for them. And so that's when it becomes really scary. And so we've moved from a system that really looks at safety, that looks at the appropriate, you know, making sure that we have all of our T's crossed, our I's dotted, to a system which is potentially really delaying care um, or even making it so patients can't access the treatments that they need. And that's when it becomes scary. And that's really why the cancer support community has said, if we are going to continue with utilization management, which will continue on because it's a way to manage costs as we've talked about, we really need to talk about what a patient-centered system can look like. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. And I think that's a great um, segue into our first commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to take a closer look at the more common utilization management practices and techniques. So we'll go into a little bit more depth around some of the terminology that we've been using. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Amgen. We'll be right back with more after this break. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. 
This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. I'm your guest host today, Linda House. I'm sitting in for your regular host, Kim Tibaldo, who is off. And I have to admit that our colleague, Elizabeth Franklin, who is the Executive Director of the Cancer Support Communities Cancer Policy Institute, and I decided we would 
take the mic, um, if you will, to talk about this really important topic around utilization management and how it could impact your treatment plan or that of a loved one. And more importantly, how can you work with your healthcare team to make sure that you are, in fact, getting the best care that takes into account your your priorities, preferences, and wishes. Elizabeth is a recognized author and speaker. Her articles have appeared in publications such as Value in Health, Journal of Clinical Pathways, Journal of Cancer Education, Health and Social Work, and the Conquer Cancer Magazine. She's co-authored two books on nonprofit leadership and co-edited two social work texts. In addition, she is a member of numerous organizations, including the National Association of Social Workers, the Association of Oncology Social Work, the Academy of Oncology Nurse and Patient Navigators, and as chair of the Policy and Advocacy Committee um, for the Alliance for Quality Psychosocial Care. So, Elizabeth, I can't wait to dive into a closer examination of utilization management. But before we do that, can you just share with us why you decided to make utilization management such a strategic focus of your work in this last year or so? Absolutely. Um, You know, when we talk about health policy, it can seem so big and overwhelming that we were having strategic discussions about what we as the cancer support community wanted to focus on in terms of how we could have the biggest impact in the lives of patients. And we decided that utilization management was that issue. And there are a few reasons for that. As we've been having conversations over the past couple of years with um, elected officials at both federal and state levels, with um, agency officials at places like the Department of Health and Human Services, they've said things to us like, look, we know that costs aren't going down anytime soon across the healthcare system. And again, in cancer, it's particularly, um, particularly acute where costs are rising. So the way that we're going to manage um, healthcare costs is through this concept of utilization management. And we also hear from patients, you know, they're paying more out of pocket than they have before. They're surprised when their premiums have risen or when they're paying higher co-pays. And so we knew that this was both a big P policy issue that we could address at within legislatures and Congress and um, within the executive branch, but it's also something that's really having an impact on patients' lives on a daily basis. And so we thought this, um, this really was a place where we wanted to focus our energy and we thought that we could have an impact. So we know that by engaging with stakeholders across the healthcare system, again, whether it's payers, providers, um, whether it's pharmacy benefit managers or employers, we thought this would be a really great opportunity to engage in conversations that could have a productive end and that we could really focus on patient-centered utilization management. And so that's really why we focused on this, both because it's an issue that doesn't seem to be going anywhere and, and that really has an impact on the bottom line for patients. So let's let's start to peel the onion away and talk about some of these tactics in particular. And you know, these are these are two separate tactics, prior authorization and step therapy. Why don't we start with prior authorization? And I know that you went into that just a little bit, but if I think that that's something that people really experience widely, both for medications and then also for even procedures, you know, even in outpatient surgery, you typically will have to have prior authorization. So let's start with prior authorization and then we'll move into step therapy. Absolutely. I think that um, 
every single one of us who's ever taken a medication, had a procedure, a surgery, um, had an MRI, whatever it is, we have all experienced prior authorization, whether we know it or not. And again, all that means is that an insurance company or someone in the healthcare system is making a determination about you as a patient that a procedure or um, medication or something that you are about to access that has been prescribed by your provider is appropriate, is safe, and is covered by your insurance. And so, again, in a perfect world, prior authorization can be a good thing. It can make sure that you're not going to pay more out of pocket. You're not going to receive a surprise bill that everything is going to go as appropriate. We would hope that prior authorization would just really be focused on safety and making sure that you get the appropriate treatment. Um, Sometimes prior authorization means that you might be denied for a treatment or service. Um, Oftentimes that means that patients have to advocate and appeal for themselves. Um, From the perspective of cancer patients, this can be really exhausting and tiring. You don't feel well. You've been diagnosed with cancer and you're told by your insurance company, no, we are not going to cover that treatment. And so I often think about, you know, if a cancer patient has to pick up the phone and call the insurance company and fight to get access, that can be really damaging, especially from a psychosocial perspective. And so, again, we hope that in a perfect world, prior authorization just means that you're getting access to the appropriate therapies or or resources, but we also have to keep an eye out to ensure that patients are not just jumping through hoops for no reason. Um, Previously, I've worked in a hospital, and I know that our social workers and patient navigators worked with insurance companies many, many hours of the day to get through prior authorization requests. Um, Sometimes it also can be incredibly onerous. Um, Let's say you are utilizing chemotherapy. You really should only have to jump through that hoop once to say, you know, I've been approved for chemotherapy. You shouldn't have to do it over and over. And so, again, we're fighting for a system where if utilization management exists, like prior authorization, that it makes common sense and is really um, usable and friendly to patients. And so for something like prior authorization, that means that it's based on evidence that patients understand what's going on and that they really only have to jump through that hurdle once and not over and over again. Great. And so let's talk about step therapy. Yeah, so we touched on this a little bit before, but step therapy, the um, the name of it makes perfect sense. So if you picture actual steps, let's say that your provider... Um, prescribed you a treatment that is at that top tier. So they want you on a medication that is costly, but it's particularly um, important for you to be on that specific medication. An insurer could come back and say, no, we're not going to cover that medication. You need to start on a much less expensive medication and see if that works first. Sometimes people call this, quote unquote, fail first. And what that means is that if a patient starts on that lower cost medication, that medication has to fail to work, and then they would get bumped up to the next step and then the next step. There are different tiers on which medications sit on based on uh, primarily cost, 
and the patient then has to work up to the tier at which their provider prescribed a medication. So um, in cancer, again, this can be incredibly negative because a physician is prescribing a particular medication based on the, um, the patient's both medical condition, what kind of cancer they have, but also what they've communicated to the, the physician is important to them. This takes us back to that original conversation we had, Linda, about a shared decision-making process. And if a provider and a patient have decided that a particular medication is appropriate for them, we would hope that they would have the autonomy to be able to access it. Step therapy can create a barrier to that. And so we are working at the state level, working state by state in terms of implementing step therapy bills that wouldn't be punishing to cancer patients. And so we, we've, I've heard you talk a bit about step therapy for medications, but I believe that mm-hmm. step therapy is also put into place when diagnostics, especially the more costly diagnostics, happen or are needed. That's right. That's right. So it's the same premise. We know that um, diagnostic testing, it's a much newer area, but we're finding that it's a key component in personalized medicine these days. And so we're seeing some of the, th- the same things happen. Um, the cancer support community conducts uh, what we call an access to care survey every few years, and we're seeing it happen more and more with diagnostic testing as well. And so this is incredibly frustrating to patients who feel like their provider prescribed them you know, a diagnostic test to figure out what's going on or a medication, and they have barriers put between them and that test or that medication. But we're seeing it happen more and more, and it, that's why we have conversations like this because these seemingly very complex policy discussions can sometimes be overwhelming for patients, right? The average person may not know what step therapy is, but we believe that patient education is so critically important so that patients can become advocates and they can say to their physician, you know, we, we got, I, you prescribed this medication for me and this is the medication that we believe is right. I'm going to appeal this with my insurance company or I need to have a conversation with people about this. And so whether it's diagnostic testing or um, medications or or any service that's subjected to utilization management, we really want to have these conversations to make sure that patients understand what's going on and that they they understand what they can do to advocate to overcome them. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. And we're going to go to commercial break in just a second, but I want to touch, I want to touch on the diagnostics a little bit because it may look as it may look <laughs> to patients like this or in this way that, okay, we're going to do a CAT scan. And then if we see something in the CAT scan or don't see something in the CAT scan, then we'll move you to a PET scan. Mm-hmm. And I just want to make sure that, that you know, that the, the patients are feeling empowered to think um, about having conversations with their healthcare professional to say, you know, how can we, how can we get to the most effective diagnostic that we possibly can get as soon in the process as as possible. And, and again, I would say that for the for the drugs too, how can we get to the, the most um, effective drug as early in the process as, as well? But especially think in this you know day and age where where technology has taken us to a point where diagnostics are so um, accurate today that it's really important um, that we point that out. 
Absolutely. And we talked a little bit about personalized medicine before. Not only is it the the right thing to do sort of from a, a human perspective, making sure that patients get access to the test or to the medication that they need to be on, but, you know, frankly, it makes a lot of sense from a financial perspective. If we're making patients fail certain things or if we're making them go through many different types of tests, ultimately that's bad for the financial bottom line of both sort of from a societal, excuse me, from a societal perspective, but also from a patient perspective, we don't want them paying out of pocket for three different types of tests or paying out of pocket for different medications that don't work. So again, not only is it right for patients for their health and well-being, but it just doesn't make sense from a financial standpoint either. Yep, agree. We are going to have to take a quick commercial break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we'll be right back. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia, Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities, Frankly Speaking About Cancer Series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Bristol Myers Squibb. 
I'm a strange voice to you. I'm Linda House, and I'm the guest host today. Kim Tebaldo is off, and my friend and colleague, Elizabeth Franklin, is here with us talking about utilization management techniques and the way in which they are becoming more prevalent in the patient care continuum across cancer and other disease areas. And we just started having a conversation about a couple of them. We went through step therapy and prior authorization and really what those are and how they might impact patients so that you're aware and can have conversations with your healthcare team. And for this segment, segment three, we want to cover two additional um, tactics, if you will. Number one is called clinical pathways. And number two is called coverage with evidence development. And Elizabeth, why don't we start with pathways on this one? And please tell our listeners what are clinical pathways? Sure. So um, clinical, both clinical pathways and coverage with evidence development are good examples of um, utilization management, like you said, tactics or mechanisms that could be used in a way that makes a lot of sense, but sometimes they can create barriers for patients. So I want to talk about what they look like in a perfect world and then also um, how we're trying to work on them to be more patient-centered. So we'll start with clinical pathways. Many patients understand that there are guidelines out in the world for how to treat cancer. And so there are organizations like the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, or NCCN, which put forth guidelines. So let's say that a patient is diagnosed with a very specific type of cancer, and their physician could go to the NCCN guideline and say, this is the most evidence-based scientific approach to treating this person's cancer. That's great. It helps to ensure that all patients can get access to or um, their provider would understand the best possible way to treat them. Um, NCCN updates those guidelines and really focuses on the most evidence-based, cutting-edge, leading-edge treatment. So pathways are a little bit different. Oftentimes, pathways are informed by guidelines, but they're not exactly the same. Pathways are created um, many times by insurance companies or other stakeholders, and they say to a physician, you know, we have this patient here who has this type of cancer, and this is the pathway we want them on. This is what we will cover as an insurance company. And when those pathways are aligned with guidelines, and I know that's a little confusing, But when those pathways are aligned with guidelines, that's fine. We've actually done a study where we talked to patients and they said, you know, guidelines sound great and pathways actually sound okay. It sounds like everybody will get a certain standard of care. And that's true. But sometimes mechanisms are put in place which create barriers to patient access. Um, That means that what if not all drugs for your type of cancer are on pathway? Then a patient would not be able to access that specific Um, medication, which could create a problem for their care. Um, Sometimes health insurance companies incentivize providers, meaning if you put this patient on a specific pathway, we will pay you a certain amount of money, money per month per patient. And that's really challenging for us as patient advocates. And again, we did a study with patients talking about pathways, and they really don't like that idea that a provider would be getting paid by an insurance company to put them on a specific pathway and specific drugs. They really want to ensure that they're getting guideline-specific care and that it's not based just on cost. And oftentimes, pathways can look just at cost, 
and not so much at the right drug for the right person at the right time. So again, in a perfect world, a pathway can make the job of a physician easier. It can ensure um, that they are utilizing guideline-specific care, but where it becomes a problem and where it's not quite so patient-centered is when those pathways do not include all of the drugs that a patient might need access to or um, a physician has an incentive to stay on pathway even when that's not in the, the best interest of the patient. So does that make sense when talking about pathways, Linda? It does. And it's interesting. Um, I was speaking to a patient this morning who happens to be in China and being treated for breast cancer in China. And she was mentioning that her treatment was based on the NCCN guidelines. So those, mm-hmm. you know, medically um, approved and chosen guidelines that, you know, like, like you said, frequently tell physicians how to, to prescribe uh, treatments. Um the pathways, what's interesting is, is that, you know, her treatment is governed by the guidelines, but her insurance company does have a different pathway. And so they are having to do a little extra work to make sure that uh, her care is being covered from the insurance uh, insurance perspective. So um, I think that's very, that's very clear. One thing that I would, you know, add for our listeners is that um, if you are in a healthcare system where the hospital pharmacy sets up its own formulary, there may be some additional conflicting requirements between the pathways that your insurance company has and then the formulary or essentially pathways that the hospital would have in place. That's right. And um, just to, to clarify, Linda, the, the term formulary, like you said, is sort of the, the quote-unquote pathway for um, what drugs are covered. And so we, we talk a lot about formularies, but it's, it's incredibly important, especially think about um, when a patient is selecting health insurance. So especially for those patients who are choosing health insurance on a health insurance marketplace, um, we developed something called the cancer insurance checklist. Um, but it's, it's really important to think through that type of checklist checklist to say, the formulary covers these drugs, you know, what if I need access to something else? So um, again, in a perfect world, the science is advancing so quickly, and there's so many different and new and innovative medications available out there that physicians do need guidelines, and we do need to understand what is is the most sort of leading edge and evidence-based treatment, but it can be um, very tricky to understand exactly what those pathways look like. So we would encourage... um, you know, uh, patients to contact their insurance company and ask these questions to really understand the information may not be readily available. Oftentimes, formularies um, can be posted online, not always, but often. Um, Pathways, not so much. And and so that leads us back to this issue of patient-centered utilization management. We believe in transparency. If a pathway is going to be utilized, we need to be really transparent about what that looks like. And if if we can't be transparent, then that's just not patient-centered. And that's a problem. Mm -hmm. So let's move to an equally complex topic, which is called coverage coverage with evidence development. So tell us about coverage with evidence development, also known as CED. That's right. This one is, is pretty complex, but it's really important for patients to understand. So coverage with evidence development, or CED, like you said, is a tactic used to determine what kinds of medications will be covered by payers. 
All that means is that what happens in order for a medication to be approved by an insurance company or through a government payer like Medicare, and oftentimes we are um, facing a scenario where there's more and more innovative medications. These medications are hitting the market. Um, A great example and a place where coverage with evidence development has come into play is this this concept of CAR-T cell therapy. And we won't get into the science of of CAR-T therapy, but it has the potential to be a, a potential cure. It's showing incredible results in many patients for whom it's appropriate for, um, but it's still really new. And so when these super innovative new medications hit the market, payers are saying, we will cover this, we will pay for this, but you need to collect data long-term to show what the impacts are. And so that's why it's called coverage, so insurance coverage, with evidence development, because they want to track long-term the evidence that the medication's working. Um, From a cancer support community perspective, we would hope that that evidence is tracking things that are important to patients. And so it's really not just about survival. It's really not just to show the medication's working to physically help the patient feel better, but we're asking patients about things that matter the most to them, and we're tracking that kind of information. CSC is constantly working on the research front to track things that are most important to patients, and we would hope that if we're, um, we're implementing this coverage with evidence development that they're doing the same thing. And again, in a perfect world, more information is better. We know that um, we want to, to collect this information to track how patients are doing. What we don't want to happen is to see barriers put between patients and um, accessing the medication that they need. And so there's a fear that coverage with evidence development could do just that, that the requirements to capture this evidence would be so onerous that patients wouldn't be able to access the medication. And we don't want to see that happen. We don't want to see anything come in between patients and the appropriate therapies for them. And you may know more about this, but the evidence that's being covered, is, is that ever shared with patients and, and providers who have contributed to the database? CED is relatively new-ish in cancer, um, and so th- there's really no roadmap for what this would look like. We would say in a perfect world, we want that circle to be completed so that patients and providers could have access to it. I don't think that it's happening today, and so that's another area for advocacy for patient advocates to say, look, if you're going to collect this data, I need to know what you're collecting. We all have a right to access our data um, and to make sure that we understand what it's being used for, and so as we see um, coverage with evidence development being implemented more often moving forward, I think that's a really important point, Linda, that patients deserve access to that data and to understand what's happening with it. Great. Thank you. And before we go into our final commercial break, I just want to remind our listeners that the blogs and the Cancer Policy Institute, I think, does an amazing job of writing uh, blogs and newsletters to help just inform our constituents on these particular topics. And I believe Rachel has a blog on mm-hmm. clinical data, pathways, and, and utilization management practices, correct? That's right. Um, We are currently publishing a series of blogs on utilization management. Within this radio show, you're getting a very quick snippet of what each of these things are, but we want to make sure that patients are armed with as much information as they need to advocate on these issues. So we encourage folks to go to our website at www.cancersupportcommunity.org 
at the top of the, the main page, you'll see a word that says blog. And if you click on that, you'll see all of our blogs, including our advocacy blogs. Um, and we also ask patients to sign up for our grassroots advocacy listserv, and we will deliver those blogs right to your inbox so you can learn more about UM and all of the breaking policy issues that we work on. Perfect. Thank you so much. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we will be right back after this just short break. Today's show is brought to you in part by Genentech. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Merck. I'm your guest host today, Linda House. I'm the president of the Cancer Support Community, and it's been so much fun today to be joined by Elizabeth Franklin, who is the executive director of the Cancer Support Community's Cancer Policy Institute. And I'm so thankful to have her with us, and she's such a wealth of knowledge. And as I'd mentioned earlier, she's working on her doctorate in social work. And um, as this idea of value and making sure that we're keeping patients at the center is exactly what she's focused all of her 
her clinical work and her um, academic work uh, towards. So it's been terrific to to have that expertise here today. And um, Elizabeth, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done and you know this idea of uh, shared decision making. And I know that you've touched on that just a little bit, but. Um, tell us about patients and shared decision-making when utilization management is at the forefront. Sure. So as we talked about in the first segment of this radio show, um, shared decision-making is the gold standard. For those of us who are, are sitting back thinking, you know, what if I receive a cancer diagnosis one day? Or what if someone in my life receives a cancer diagnosis? It's a time of incredible chaos and upheaval. And frankly, most people are, are afraid. And so we would hope that patients could enter into what we call a shared decision-making process with their provider. And they would sit down and they would say to their physician, you know, this is what I care about. This is what I want to continue to be able to do. So, for example, I know if, if I were diagnosed with cancer tomorrow, work would be incredibly important to me. I would not want to be so nauseated that I, I couldn't work. Um, I've, I've talked with women who under no circumstance want to lose their hair. Um, I, you know, it just, it really depends on the individual person. If you're chasing little kids around or, you know, it, it depends on your personal value needs and preferences. And so when you enter into a shared decision-making process with your provider, you let those things be known. You say to them, this is what I want. This is what I don't want. We can't always um, get what we want in terms of the medications available. And if we, you know, for example, will lose our hair, will not lose our hair, but we can at least have that conversation and a physician can do their best to fit us with the medication that that meets our needs. Um, As we said a little bit earlier, sometimes utilization management can come in between that process. And a physician might have to say, you know, look, I, I can't prescribe a specific medication for you because of these UM practices. And so that's that's highly problematic for us because we believe that the only way to achieve, you know, quote unquote, personalized medicine, which is a real buzzword in the cancer world right now, is to ensure that we understand the personal values of patients. And that's at the heart of shared decision making. So again, we know that utilization management's happening. It's probably not going anywhere anytime soon, but we want to make sure that UM practices make sense, that they're evidence-based, and that they're really centered around the patient and making sure that the patient gets access to what they need. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the things we haven't really talked on is the uh, the role of genetic and genomic, more importantly, I would think genomic testing and utilization management. And I'm wondering if you had thoughts around um, how those intersect Sure. So um, for our listeners, genomic testing may be a new concept for them. And so when when someone's diagnosed with cancer, we are learning more and more about their tumor or their type of cancer. And we're able through this process of genomic testing to figure out what's special, unique, and personal about their tumor type. Um, not all The science has not advanced to the point where we can know everything about every single tumor, but we're really learning a ton. So for example, example, in lung cancer, we know about more about genetic mutations than we've ever known before. Some of our listeners may be familiar with the concept 
of um, the the BRCA gene mutation or um, different uh, Lynch syndrome, which can lead to colon cancer, many different um, types of cancer in the body. And so when someone's diagnosed with cancer, they can go receive genomic testing. We can learn more about their very specific type of cancer. And in some cases, we can link them with a very personalized medication, which is amazing. What that means is that they would get a medication which will have better outcomes for them, which is really tailored to their disease. Um, In terms of utilization management for genomic testing, sometimes genomic testing just isn't covered by insurance. And we think that's incredibly problematic. We, um, we know that if patients can be linked specifically to the personalized medication that they need for their specific type of tumor or their specific genetic mutation, their outcomes will be better. We'll spend less money in the long run because we're not jumping through hoops. But if they can't access genomic testing, we'll never have that information. So utilization management in this area of both genetic and genomic testing. So you think about genomic as the specific tumor genetic. Um, I mentioned BRCA before, but if, if your, your mother has the BRCA gene or had breast cancer and you learn about this, um, it's really important to link patients to the testing that makes sense for them and that would ultimately lead to personalized medicine. So the innovation is growing at such a pace that we, we're having a hard time keeping up, but we're seeing utilization management take place within this world of testing too. And that's incredibly frustrating because we know that we can link many patients to the personalized medications that they need. So it's another area of advocacy. You can tell that I work for the Cancer Policy Institute because I keep bringing up ways that patients can, can take control and become advocates. And this is definitely one of those areas. Great. Thank you. We have just about a minute before we are at the end of our show. So I just wanted to see if there were any final words that you had, perhaps, you know, tell us where the utilization management coalition and that work is going or where patients can go for uh, resources or maybe both. Sure. Our website, like I said, cancersupportcommunity.org is a great place to go and learn more about utilization management. Um, our information is on the website for you to, to contact us and learn more. Um, you know, utilization management is not going anywhere. And even though I think that oftentimes patients may find this a scary topic um, to learn that they may not get access to the treatments that they need, it's also incredibly important to educate ourselves and to become advocates on this issue. So I, I hope that, that folks who are listening today come to our website, learn more about this, contact us, but also just educate yourself. I know that it's overwhelming to, to have cancer, to have a loved one with cancer, but it's incredibly important to understand these nuanced policy issues that can truly have an impact on access to care. And we are here to help. The Cancer Policy Institute would love to work with, with all of our listeners, with patients, patient advocates, other stakeholders in the healthcare system. We want to have meaningful conversations, nuanced conversations, Conversations. We don't want to get into, you know, fights or shouting or, or have um, sort of the nasty policy conversations that can go on these days. We really want to do what's best for patients. And I welcome anybody to join us in those conversations so that we can support patients in the best way possible. Great. Thank you so much. It has been my true pleasure to have you join us today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am Linda House, the president of the Cancer Support Community. Kim Tebaldo will be back with you next week. And we thank Elizabeth you so much for, for, for being here with us. Thank you very much. 
As I mentioned earlier in the show, the Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephonic support. For more information about our programs, Elizabeth has given you our website, but I'm going to repeat that. It's www.cancersupportcommunity.org, and we welcome you to call our telephone helpline at any point in time. All of our services are always free of charge. The number of our helpline is 888-793-9355. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. support